We had a lot of fun together doing those videos, and uh, they just become more adorable as we go on. Hey, let me uh, ask for a show of hands at all of our campuses. I'm going to use the name of a program that appears on the National Geographic channel and just see how many of you are aware of, or it doesn't mean you've necessarily watched it, but you're just aware of this show. How many of you have heard of the show called Doomsday Preppers? Could I see your hands, please? Wow, I'm shocked at how many people uh, know about that show. Well, if you've watched that show or know the theme of it, you know that Doomsday Preppers refers to a, a allegedly growing group of people in the United States and really around the world that are trying to get ready for doomsday. And they're trying to get ready for, for things like uh, nuclear holocaust or electromagnetic pulse, the internet totally imploding. Uh, they're trying to get ready for invasion of a foreign power or possibly from outer space. Uh, getting ready for civilization as we know it to end, okay? And so they store away food and clean water and make all kinds of preparations and put tunnels in the ground. I mean, it's just incredible, very, very intriguing. Apparently, a growing number of people are really into this and, and getting ready for it. I actually have a, a dear friend that is really into this and takes it very, very uh, seriously. Now, I doubt, I doubt that we have many people at Grace that would be, call yourselves doomsday preppers. Maybe you're not quite that extreme, but I'll bet we have quite a few people who, while you're not that extreme, you maybe store some things away just in case there's a catastrophe, right? Perhaps you have a generator in case electricity goes out and, and, and you, you, we're going to have an electricity source. Maybe you store away some clean water on a regular basis or try to make a place where you and your family could be safe. Perhaps you store food. Maybe you have your MREs ready. You know, your MREs, your meals ready to eat. So let me just ask again for a show of hands, how many of you have made some preparations like that? Maybe you store some things away and just try to be ready for a mild catastrophe. Could I see your hand? Thanks. That's lots of people. Now, keep your hands up because we need to know where to go if this happens. <laughs> <laughs> My friend that I mentioned, I said to him, and hey, this guy's unbelievable. I mean, he has so much food stored away. I said, I just want you to know, buddy, that if the world melts down, you're going to see me knocking on your door, okay? Your house is the place that I'm going to. Well, doomsday preppers are very interesting, but do you realize that much of what the church does, if you think about it, is really to prepare people for doomsday? really is, isn't it? Now, we don't call it that. We don't talk in those terms. But the Bible says a lot about the judgment to come. It talks a lot about life after death and, and that we need to be prepared for that. So when you think about it, really what the Bible's trying to do and what the church at its best is trying to do is to get people ready for uh, doomsday. I uh, mentioned last week a book that I found very intriguing by Dr. Maurice Rawlings. I finished that book up again. I'd been exposed to it years ago, but I read the book again this week, and it's still so riveting. He's a cardiologist from Tennessee. And the thing that's unusual about Dr. Rawlings' research 
is that he and a colleague interviewed 300 people who had near-death or flatline experiences. Now, here's the thing that makes their research different from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross or any of the other many people who study this kind of thing. Their interviews are all conducted immediately after resuscitation. And Dr. Rawlings reported that in his interviews of 300 people with these experiences, and he's coming from Tennessee, the buckle of the Bible belt, mind you, roughly 50% of his patients immediately after resuscitation report a hellish kind of experience. And what makes it interesting is that if you interview them days or even weeks later, the story has usually been adjusted somewhat. And he concludes that perhaps they're unwilling to admit to themselves or to family that they had exposure or witnessed a sort of hellish kind of experience. In fact, Dr. Rawlings' own testimony is that he was an atheist. Even though he'd grown up in Sunday school, in the church, he had just drifted totally away from that, considered religion just a human fabrication. But after being exposed to these stories over and over again, it got him to explore his own faith anew, and he came to put his trust in Jesus Christ. The church is really about preparing people for doomsday scenarios. That is so much of what we do. And I like what Dr. Rawlings concluded. In fact, I want to read it to you. He says, just listening to these patients has changed my life. There is a life after death, and if I don't know where I'm going, it's not safe to die. And I think he's absolutely right. Of course it's not safe to die if you really don't know where you're going. Well, here's the deal. God in his word wants to prepare us for the afterlife. And so today, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, where we're going to dive into one of the classic stories in Scripture that deals with this subject. This is an amazing story, Luke 16. It's in your notes as well, and you can follow along on the screens. I invite you to take some notes as we look at it, as we look at what we can learn about life beyond death's door. Now, here's one of the shocking things to me as you find Luke 16 in your Bible. I am surprised that if you really study the Gospels carefully, this, this is a shocker to me. Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. And they, they aren't threats, they're loving warnings. Jesus isn't threatening people about hell, he's lovingly warning them because it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should be saved, should come to repentance. But he warns about hell more than he celebrates heaven. We're going to talk about heaven next week, I look forward to that, but Today, we want to deal with this subject, Can I Take Hell Seriously? Let's begin reading the text. Look along as I read from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, what does Abraham's side mean? That's clearly a place of comfort, a place of blessedness, a, a paradise, a place where we await, if you will, the second coming of Christ. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, I just want to pause there for a moment. Just push the pause button. We'll go right back. But I want to make just a statement here about something, lest anybody be confused. Don't let the fact that one of these guys was poverty-stricken and the other wealthy confuse you. The fact of their material wealth or lack thereof had little, if anything, to do with their final destiny. Oh, I know that Jesus said how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm aware of that. But nowhere does the Bible teach that if you're rich, somehow you can't be saved. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible, right? So, the fact that they were rich or poor had nothing to do with their eternal destiny. The only thing that affects that is what we do with Jesus Christ. But also, this should be a reflection against a, a popular, I think, misunderstanding today about those that are on God's team. There are some teaching today across the nation that if you're really on God's team, you're always, you're always, if you work it right, you should be healthy, wealthy, and wise if God's on your team and you're on his. Well, this should at least be one passage that helps correct that error. Here's a man who had virtually nothing. He's what we would call a street person. And yet, he had a relationship with the living God. I just think it's important that we pause and point some of those things out. Let's read on. So, he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Notice the Bible, when it talks about hell, uses terms like fire and it talks about the suffering involved. We'll deal a little bit more with that in just a moment. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Seems to indicate pretty clearly that one's destination after death is irrevocably fixed. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Again, if you'd allow me just to push the pause button here. Some of you may have a loved one who, as far as you know, did not know Christ. And perhaps you wonder about their destiny. I actually talked to a, a man once a professional, a successful businessman. His grandfather had been a critical influence in his life. But as I shared the gospel with this man, he said this to me, I feel like it would be an indictment against my grandfather if I believed what you're saying. 
and I accepted Christ as my Savior. I was confused. He said, well, my grandfather didn't believe this. My grandfather was a kind and good man, and he had done for this gentleman what his father probably should have done. He had been there for him in all kinds of situations, and he felt that it would be a slap in his grandfather's face to accept Christ. I found that very curious. But here's what I would want to point out, in case any of you feel that kind of thing. Notice that this man's preeminent desire was for others not to come here. Did you catch that? His number one driving desire above everything else is that others would be prevented from coming to this place. Let's read on, verse 29. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, the scriptures witness. The Old Testament scriptures. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that statement, by the way, is a bit prophetic in nature because Jesus was about to rise from the dead. And even though he had come back from the dead, many would choose still not to believe in him. I think you'll have to admit that is one intriguing story. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that is an intriguing story. Whatever you believe about it, whatever you conclude, that is one amazing story. Now, before we dive in and begin to learn all we can about what Scripture says about this subject, I just want to make sure that you know where I'm coming from and how I feel about this message. I don't get any jollies from preaching this message, just in case any of you are wondering. I've not been waiting all week, counting down the days. Oh, yahoo, I get to preach about hell. I can hardly wait. Just, just want you to know my heart. There are some subjects that if they weren't true, if they weren't in the Bible, I would never bring them up. And this is probably one of those topics for me. But the fact of the matter, it is true. It is clearly revealed in Scripture. And it's my job as a proclaimer of God's gospel and of his truth to preach what is true no matter how I feel about it. Does that make sense to everybody? I'm just trying to tell you where I'm coming from on this in case any of you don't know me or all of you who know me well, you already know that about me, all right? But I just want you to know I get no kicks, no jollies about preaching about a subject that is this intense, okay? And as I've studied and prepared this week and read all kinds of books on this, I find it amazing how many modern people uh, try, go to all, all kinds of mental gymnastics to try to say the Bible doesn't say what it really says, okay? Deny all kinds of things about it and, and so on and just don't want this topic to be true. And I, I, I think this is very significant that we just say this before we dive in. I, th I understand that because we don't feel good about this topic, do we? This is awkward in social settings. It's awkward in Christian settings to talk about this topic, okay? But how we feel about something doesn't determine whether it's true or not, right? 
Let's say that you were up on top of a 50-story building enjoying a gorgeous day. I mean, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, there's hardly a cloud in the sky, and you get the idea, I want to fly. You're 50 stories up. And you think, man, I, I, I just believe that God would want me to enjoy the euphoria of, of flying. And you start thinking, some people believe in gravity. But I'm not sure I believe in that. I mean, why would God create something like gravity? And it's so limiting. It inhibits us so much. Surely, with a beautiful day like this, with a world like this, he would want us to fly. He would just want us to soar. You think to yourself, I don't really believe in gravity. And as you're thinking, you look down. You look at the people walking down on the street far below, and you think, those poor, pathetic souls bound by their ignorant belief in gravity. It must have been invented by some authority who wanted just to hold us down to the ground. And so you walk over to the edge, and you spread your arms, not your wings. You spread your arms, and you say, I'm going to fly. And you do. And you say, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it was true. And for a few euphoric moments, you believe there is no gravity. But momentarily, you become a genuine believer. <laughs> and before you said, I don't understand gravity anyway, but now you have full comprehension. There are a number of topics like that. And the Bible says that there would come a day when people would gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We must never determine truth by what we feel is good or what we like or don't like. The question is, is it true or not? You say, well, I don't like that, Pastor. I like what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, this is God's universe, and God is running the universe the way he chooses. And you may say, well, I don't like the way God is running his universe. And that's fine for you to feel that way, but get your own universe. <laughs> then we can talk. And, and, and I, think, I, I think, honestly, that's, that's a good word. There are lots of things that God has done that we may not like, but we need to kind of get our own universe and then we can have a conversation about that. So what can we learn here about what the Bible says? Let me just read you one quote from C.S. Lewis. He explains the most certain road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Now what does he mean by that? He means the surest road to hell is the one you're on where you're not aware. You're not aware of where it's leading. You're not aware. There's this gradual slope. And I believe that in modern society, so much has been done just to make the slope to destruction so gradual, using words like myth and metaphor, trying to say it's just not real. It's just an invention of authority figures to try to hold people down. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this subject. First of all, we see in 2 Thessalonians 1, and I referred to this passage last week, Paul writes the following. He will punish those who do not know God 
and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. So one of the things we learn about hell is it's a place that is everlasting. You might want to underline that word in your notes. Now, I did some research this week being a good student of the Bible, trying to be a good student, and I researched this word everlasting. I'm going to share something cool that I really found about it. The word, you know what it actually means? The word everlasting means something that lasts forever. Isn't that cool? I'm just always glad to bring these insightful tidbits to you. But you can, again, try to make the word say whatever you want, but that's what the word says. That's what it means. It's something that lasts forever. And the Bible gives several snapshots of this place. Let me share a few of them with you. In Matthew 13, for instance, Jesus said it's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, Jesus referred to this place as outer darkness. Right here in today's text, Luke 16, it's a place of agony and torment. In Revelation chapter 20, it's referred to as the second death. And then in Isaiah 66, this place is referred to as a place where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. So what types of suffering do we actually read about in the Bible are going to occur in hell? You might want to jot some notes down. First of all, emotional suffering. Now, I mentioned last week that one of the key words used in the Bible for hell is that word, that Greek word, Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was an actual garbage dump outside the city walls of Jerusalem. It was the city's garbage dump. And all the refuge and all the foul things were thrown there. Anything that was worthless or irredeemable had no value. It was a hopeless place. And this is a historical fact. That garbage dump, there was always smoke rising from it day and night because it burned incessantly. All day, all night, the fire never went out. There was so much refuse, and it was constantly burning and being burned. Isn't that, that's the image that Jesus Christ used for hell and what hell was going to be like. And in Matthew 13, he said it would be a place of gnashing of teeth. Now, what does that mean? I think that means that it will be a place of eternal regret. See, Gnashing of teeth is the body's natural response to regret. If you miss an opportunity, if you miss an open door, if something comes along, oh, I missed it. I didn't respond. I didn't make the decision. You go like that. And you put your teeth. This is just a natural response even today. Hell will be a place of eternal emotional regret. Secondly, hell is a place of physical suffering. Now, I made the point last week that heaven is real, kind of like the title of the movie that's out right now, Heaven is for Real. Well, it's real. It's a real place. It's a physical place. And by the way, 
We're going to talk about that next week. I hope I don't scare you all off this week because I'm pumped about talking about heaven next week. It is a real physical place where we will have a new physical body. But make no mistake, those who go to hell will also have a new body. It is a physical place of physical suffering. Third, it's a place of relational suffering. If you just want to write this word down, if you want one word that really captures hell, it would be the word loneliness. Seriously, loneliness. Now, it's so interesting that many people who are cynical or want to mock the idea of hell often kind of refer to hell. This has become a popular way to talk about it. Well, I want to go there so I can be with all my friends. (laughs) It's like one big eternal frat party. Well, I don't know where that idea came from, but it certainly didn't come from the Bible. You notice in the text we read earlier, Luke 16, Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. There's a relationship. It's a place of community by definition. That's what heaven is. It's a place of community by definition. Hell, on the other hand, this man in hell, the rich man, he's all alone. It's solitary confinement. And perhaps the worst suffering of all is the loneliness of solitariness. One theologian I read put it like this. He described hell, and I quote, as nothing but yourself for all of eternity. Nothing but yourself for all of eternity. Fourth, there will be spiritual suffering there. And perhaps this is the worst of all, a place, get this, a place where God is not. You see, even the most ardent atheist on the earth today, even though they may scoff at the idea of God, may claim not to believe in God, they still benefit from God. Are you with me on this? They still see a beautiful sunset that's a part of the world that God created. Even though they reject God, they're still benefiting from God. They still benefit from the prevenient grace of God, from the preserving and sustaining favor of God on this world who's constantly keeping tragedies from occurring and so on, even though it's a world of chaos where sin does cause immense catastrophe, God is still here. God is at work here. Jesus said that. My Father is always working. But hell will be a place where God's presence is not. And there'll be nothing to prevent the horrific suffering there. Somebody put it like this, and I think this kind of sums it up. For the genuine Christian, this earth is the closest to hell that they will ever experience. For the non-believer, this world is the closest to heaven that they will ever experience. Now let's shift gears a little bit. Those are just some quick staccato kind of facts about this horrific place called hell. But now I want to shift gears a bit and begin to address how we feel about all this. Because I'm convinced through years of ministry that one of the biggest objections is not just kind of what the Bible says in describing it, but how we feel about that and how it came about in the first place. For instance, I've talked to a number of people who've asked this question. Okay, then, pastor, 
Why did God create a place like this in the first place? One guy said, what kind of twisted mind would come up with a thing like hell in the first place? Great question. Well, here's the answer. The Bible is crystal clear in the book of Revelation and in Matthew 25 that hell was not really created for people. It's a place that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. But make no mistake, please hear the rest of this. But if you choose to follow the devil, if you choose to reject God and go against God's enemy, arch enemy, the devil, you will go where he is going. You will go to the place where God is not. God allowed a place to exist where he wasn't. Henry Morris is a popular Christian theologian. He explains it like this. He said, essentially, hell is a place where all aspects of the presence of God will be completely withdrawn forever. Thus, in hell, there will be no love, for God is love. There will be no light, for God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And there will be no peace or rest or joy, since these are all attributes of God. On the contrary, there will be eternal corruption, strife, rebellion, and hatred. It's a place without God's presence. It's a place where those who don't want to live with God will be granted the freedom to do so. But I think the biggest objection that people have is how could a loving God send people to a place like that? Either God is loving or hell is horrific, but it can't be both. I understand that objection. I'm a father of two amazing children. We're keeping it real, right? I, as a father, would never allow, much less send, I would never allow my children to go to a place like that. I don't care how much they hurt me. I don't care how much they rejected me. I just can't even imagine that. But in these final minutes together, let's play that out a little bit, okay? Would you just play that out with me? Many of you are our parents. You know the love that a parent has for a child, right? So let's imagine for just a moment that your child has rejected you. They don't want your love. They don't want to be with you. They don't want, want to be around you. They won't return your text. <laughs> they won't communicate. They just made it clear, I want nothing to do with you. What are you going to do about that as a parent? I, I, I know parents well enough. I know there's something inside of most parents that would say, you know what? We'll see about that. And you want to go kidnap them? You want to go tie them up, throw them in the trunk, bring them home, get them out, tie them to a pillar in the basement and say, now we're going to talk. You are going to love me. We are going to be a happy family, right? I mean, there's something in you that wants to force it, but then you quickly realize, whoa, wait a minute. That's not how love works. That's not what love does. Love can't be forced, right? So if God is love, and he is, 
and people reject God and don't want to be with God, there has to be, because God's given free choice, there has to be a place where those who don't want to be in the presence of God can go. There has to be a place where those who don't want God can be without God. That's the way God has designed his universe. And I want to tell you, folks, what that means is, and if you're here today grappling with the claims of Christ or wondering about God and is God real, I want you to know God's not going to tie you up and bring you to his home. God's not going to chain you to the pearly gates. Hope you hear that. He's given you a choice, and God wants you to love him in return as he loves you, but he wants you to choose to do it freely. C.S. Lewis wrote, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? This is good. This is good. To wipe out sin at all cost and give them a fresh start? He did. To forgive them? But they don't ask for forgiveness. Here it is, to leave them alone, is that, is that it? Is that what you're asking God to do, to just leave them alone? You want God to leave them alone? That's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people, Lewis writes. In the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. You need to understand that the Bible is crystal clear. It's not God's will for any to perish. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance, to to be with him forever. That is God's heart. That is God's desire. But let's play this out a little further. Again, your child has rejected you. What are you going to do? You can't force it. We've already seen that. Although you kind of want to, that's not love. You can't force people to love you. So what would you do as a parent? Well, you could write a letter maybe, right? Your child's rejected you. They want nothing to do with you. You could write them a letter. They may not read it. They may not read it. That's their choice. But you can say to them, look, I've got all these awesome things designed for you. Here's how I feel about you. I want you to know what your life could be like. Here's all the glorious things that I have designed for your life. You could do that as a parent and hope that they would read it and realize where you're coming from. Or you could allow unpleasant circumstances in their life, right? That's another thing you could do as a parent. And even though they may have have rejected you, they're probably still willing to receive a check And so you've probably been still funding some things in their life. And by the way, I realize that for some of you, this is too personal to be, this is very uncomfortable because you're in this situation right now or have been in the past. And so you could say, well, wow, I'm not sure I could even be funding that lifestyle. And so you may decide, you know what, I'm going to try to get their attention through some allowing some unpleasant circumstances. I'm going to stop writing this check. I'm going to stop transferring. I'm going to allow them to have some unpleasant circumstances, and maybe it'll be a wake-up call. You could do that, right? As a parent, you could do that. You know what else you, you could do? You could send some people to tell them. 
You could find out who their peer group is, who their friends are, people around them, maybe a professor, maybe somebody they look up to in their life. And you could, you could say to that person, look, would you please tell my son or daughter, would you please tell them I love them? I miss them so much. I want them home. I miss our times together. I miss talking. And I really want them to come home. And you could try to get their attention through other people. Can I tell you something, dear friends? God has done all those things. God wrote a letter. People may not read it, but he, he wrote a letter telling about all he designed, all the glorious things he wants for you. God allowed those unpleasant circumstances in your life, always trying to get your attention, to point you the right way. God has sent people to tell you he loves you. Even people as ridiculous as me to tell you, God loves you. He misses you so much. These aren't threats. There's a big difference between a threat and a warning. These are loving warnings from God. So let me ask you, what more can God do? He came, he bled, he died, he suffered for you, he rose again, he's inviting you to come to him. And I say to you today, with all the sincerity in the world, if you don't know where you're going, it's just not safe to die. If you don't know where you're going, it's just not safe to die. So I would ask this. In the next few moments, I'm going to pray briefly. We're going to have more music, but... I'm going to ask that if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, that you just reflect on all he's done for you and just celebrate that and thank him for that. And if you don't know where you stand with God, or maybe you've outright rejected his love, please just be reminded in these moments that he loves you with an everlasting love. He has a life designed for you that is unbelievable, and he really misses you. He wants you to come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and thank you that you've designed a way for us to escape the consequences of our own sin and rebellion. Father, I thank you that it's not your will that anybody perish, but that all come to repentance, that they come to eternal life with you. Father, I pray in these following moments that your Holy Spirit would make it absolutely clear how incredible your love is for that person right now who's struggling with all this. Remind them that it's just not safe to die unless you're confident of where you stand with God. And Father, I pray that you would draw them and bring them to a point where they acknowledge, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.